Bienvenidos al Mestizo Podcast, the show for the mixed people of the mixed church. On this podcast, we explore the complicated challenges of being part of, serving in, and growing an ethnic church in el siglo XXI. As first-generation immigrants age out of their leadership and the Mestizo Church transitions to its second and third generation, how does the ethnic church continue to thrive? What should an ethnic church look like today? These questions and more are what we explore together with your hosts, Emanuel Padilla y la doctora Elizabeth Conde Frazier. Your hosts are Puerto Rican, so you're going to hear some Spanglish de vez en cuando here on the Mestizo Podcast. It's part of who we are. On today's episode, we sit down with El Obispo José García de Jesús, formerly of the Church of God of Prophecy, to discuss the transition of power and leadership, and what it looks like to healthily transition to a new leadership for a new age. We had some connection issues with Obispo García, so there will be moments where the sound will change. Be patient with us on this one. We are sure his insights will be rewarding. So, let's hear from El Obispo García about leadership training in the church. Jose, bienvenido to the podcast. Thank you, Manuel. It's a real joy to be uh, today with you and our uh, Dr. Elizabeth Conde Fraser as well. Yeah, it's a gift. Elizabeth, ¿cómo estás? ¿Todo bien? Todo bien, aquí bajo el frío un poquito, but you know, we're hanging in here. Winter is winter. Winter is winter. Jose, you're in Virginia. ¿Tienes nieve? ¿No tienes nieve? ¿Está frío? ¿Caliente? Where are you at? Because you're kind of in the middle. Yeah, no, no tenemos nieve. We we are good. Uh, it's cold and windy today. Uh, with the windshield, it's staying below. It's in the lower 30s, so... That's cold for us. <laughs> that that is cold. That is cold. Jose, you are Puerto Rican, that's correct? That's correct. If we tell people in la región in California, maybe tell us a little bit more about uh your ethnic heritage, ser puertorriqueño nacido allá o aquí en los Estados Unidos, and then a little history of the work that you did como obispo de la denominación. See, um I was born in Detroit, Michigan. Ah, uh, oh, as was I. I didn't know that. Yes, uh but my parents moved back to Puerto Rico when I was about two years ago. So I grew up in the island and I didn't came back to the mainland until I married uh, uh, my wonderful wife, Diana, uh, back in 1982. Uh, we have been engaged in church work since then in different capacities. Uh, but uh, for about 10 years, I served as the state bishop for the Church of God of Prophecy in the state of California. Uh, it began with me. Uh, being like a pastor to the pastor. So we have about 86 congregations, uh, Spanish-speaking congregations, uh, bilingual. And then uh, it, they were added the Anglo churches. So in the end, I had over 121 churches, uh, both Latino churches, African-American churches, um, white, uh, mainly um, congregation churches, from all throughout the states. So I had quite a mix of different pastors and congregations uh, serving in, in that area. So it presented uh, great chances and opportunities, some challenges, a lot of learning uh, opportunities as well as you uh, work with different, uh, they say, they think Latino is one size fits all, but it doesn't work that way. You know, we all have our different tastes for Worship, preaching, our theology sometimes is different from one country to the other in terms of the preaching, the worship, and everything that goes on. So, amen to that. It was a, an excellent. Uh, it, it was an excellent work. Uh, like I say, my job was to be a pastor to the pastors, so I ministered to their specific needs, but also there were the administrative part that I needed to oversee and make sure that uh, all our churches will be in line with the in denomination, you know, theological tenets, doctrine, and administrative practices. So, No, that's a good nutshell. So you, uh, you went through a few transitions. This episode is all about transitions. We were specifically looking to discuss the transition of one generation to the next, but I'm curious now. I, I didn't know that you also absorbed the responsibility of taking care of the Anglo congregations. Can you tell us a little more about what that was like? Uh, usually it's the reverse, right? An Anglo denomination absorbs or take in the responsibility of caring for or opening up congregations to ethnic minorities. It's really curious that in your case, what was that like? It, it was 
a pretty good transition, uh, so to speak, because uh, we have had relationships uh, before the transition took place. Uh, the previous bishop, the bishop that was over the Anglo congregations, and I, we used to do a lot of uh, joint events together with young people, retreats, uh, uh, different conferences and things like that. So that helped uh, the transition to be less, uh, I will say, drastic because uh, people on both churches, we were used to see one another and to fellowship together with one another. So we had joint events. And however, it, it has its challenges because uh, our Anglo uh, churches uh, mostly were more, uh, I would say, more conservative in, in their style, more formal in terms of the time you start, the time you end. Uh, and some of the, uh, even the, the doctrinal tenets in, in, in the church as a whole. So it, it was challenging at times because also I had to keep a delicate balance because always one side thinks you're favoring the other because you're Latino. Uh, churches on the Anglo side feel that you are favoring the the, uh, the Latino church, and the churches on the Latino side uh, feel that you are forsaking your Latino heritage to accommodate <laughs> to the to the Anglo side, and you have that dynamic tension. Uh, it wasn't ugly at any time, you know, but uh, in working, you had to be very careful that you didn't uh, do uh, things that uh, be very diplomatic. Uh, all the all the services when we were together were bilingual. Um, interesting, uh, my Latino churches didn't want to have uh, radios or simultaneous interpretations, so everything was consecutive interpretation from the platform. So every convention, every conference, every event that we had, we always had interpreters that would go from either English to Spanish and Spanish to English. And of course, our younger generations they sing in Spanish, they ate the, the las pupusas, they will eat tacos and panadas and all that stuff. But uh, when it comes to singing, they like to sing in English as well. Uh, many times the preaching, they would relate better to the preaching in English, the teaching in English. So we were always having to work that delicate balance because then you have first generation immigrants, second, third, fourth generation, all with different uh, uh, tastes and expectations, uh, especially the new ones, when they used to come, when they came to California, they would bring their tradition from back from the country that they would come from, and they would be surprised, they would be alarmed because they would think that we maybe were too liberal, so it's fake, or that's not the way to worship, or I never heard this message this way, and or the dressing, the eating, and all the different challenges that come along with that, so... It was always a fascinating. There was two days alike, and there was always something that would keep me humble on my knees, asking God for direction, discernment, and wisdom to be able to uh, take care of the flock. Jose, before Elizabeth asks you her next question, I just want to confirm. You started doing this in 1982, is that right? No, no. Um, I, worked with the, I started uh, working with the church in 1982. Uh, when I came to the church, as a matter of fact, I work with the World Language Department, which is our translation and cultural competence ministry of the church. Uh, I ended up uh, directing the department uh, in the year 2000. Uh, that's when I added the cultural competence part to the department because uh, it was very important for me that when we did translation, it was not just transferring words from one language to the other, but doing that cultural contextualization of whatever lessons, messages, and documents we were translating. So it was not a word-by-word -word translation, but it was more like a dynamic translation that would be contextualized within the culture to it was intended to, to reach. You had to be such a gift to your denomination. You just sound so ahead of the curve to me. I feel like these discussions took so long to develop. And here you were in California grinding it out and having real life experiences that, I mean, obviously California itself has always been kind of a difficult state because to your point, you have enough first generation immigrants continuing to come in. But I find it fascinating that you had that layer of the immigrant and their children. You had the layer of theology related to Anglo churches within your own denomination. So we're talking about churches that have most agreement, and yet still you had theological tension, 
ministry practice tension, cultural tension between generations and ethnic groups. I mean, you were ahead of the curve, Jose. I'm I'm excited to have you on this podcast. <laughs> no, it was it was exciting. Let me give you a clear example. I had uh, some of our members uh, didn't have a cross on the on the pulpit. For them, that was offensive. And if you invited them to come to preach, uh, they will let you know that you know they felt uncomfortable by having a cross in the pulpit. And it's because from the country they came from, uh, or the particular region of the country they came from. They felt that that was a symbol of a different Christian tradition that they didn't want to be associated with. So, you know, nuances like that, that, that you find and you say, really? <laughs> but uh, it's, I, I have lots of stories that uh, really, uh, some are funny, some that happened to me as a Puerto Rican. Uh, you learn a lot about trying to speak as generic Spanish as you can, but somehow, one way or another, you get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was one of those words that you you just thought, oh, I wish I could take that back? Oh, well, let me take you uh, a, a clear example. I was speaking at a men's, uh, at a men's conference. Uh, a pastor invited me, mostly, mostly Mexicans, and I'm talking about friendship, and I'm giving them the illustration of Sancho Panza and Don Quixote. And I'm telling them, you know, Don Quixote was always like up there, out of touch with reality. But Sancho Panza will keep him grounded, will bring him down to earth. And I said, we all, all Christian men miss a Sancho in their lives. And those men started laughing. Quack, 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 quack. They were just dying. And I'm thinking, you know, I didn't make a joke. And I asked the pastor, pastor, what just happened here? And he go, oh, bishop. Oh, it me da pena. No quisiera, no quisiera decir. No, I want to know. Stop the recording. I said, and he says, "Well, Bishop, in in our country, a Sancho is a secret lover that your wife may be." <laughs> the Bishop telling them, "All Christian men need a Sancho." It's like I was encouraging, like the wives go ahead and find. I said. Stop the just stop the recording. That's the, but they knew, you know, they knew that wasn't my. <laughs> but they just went wild and they were cracking up, and uh, and many, you know, things like that. That you said, okay, okay, I'm learning. So I I always learn to make the 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 illustration with the first and last name. If you just use Sancho alone, you get in trouble. So. Well, it's a lot to um, deal with these type of tensions, right? I mean, they're they're the funny moments, but then you have um, the reality of what it means to navigate these uh, different tensions all the time. You did it for 10 years. And I'm wondering, um, what would you say for someone who, who needs to be culturally competent in doing this type of work uh, between generations and so forth? What would you say is... Um, one thing that someone really needs to be able to do if they're going to be navigating the different cultures? I think the, the, the common mistake I see many times, you need to stay humble. Uh, you really need to uh, be respectful of the cultures that you are working with and have an attitude that you here you are like a redeemer or a savior that is going to bring this much wisdom and discernment into the mix. So one area that I think that is very important is to stay humble, be, be willing to listen for a long time, observe, listen, and learn from the culture that you are interacting. So you can understand better, you know, how to, uh, to work with different cultures. Another quick example, I had a, a brother that came and he told, uh, told me, uh, Bishop, I, yo le tuve que quitar uh, tanto dinero a, a la hermana uh, porque necesitaba eh, arreglar mi vehículo. And for me, when I hear the word quitar, immediately I was thinking, but man, this is offensive. How can you do that? Uh, this is me thinking. But I'm thinking, okay, this, this cannot be what I'm thinking. So I asked him, Please, can you explain to me? And what he was meaning is I had to borrow a certain amount of money to uh, fix my car from the sister. But it's not that he 
grab money from her to fix his car. So that taught me that uh, you really have to be willing to be humble, listen, ask a lot of questions, uh, seek understanding uh, when working with uh, people from different cultures because that will help you connect better uh, in the long run. So it's a learning process. It doesn't happen overnight. Uh, for me, I had the blessing that being a translator for so many years, I learned a lot. And still, when I became an, uh, a bishop of many different cultures at the same time, there was still a learning curve that, that I'd say the first three, four years, I was really learning more than I was trying to teach because I just wanted to make sure that, that I understood and I had a clear, uh, a good picture of my brothers and sisters in the area so that I could relate better to them. Bishop Garcia, I want to say something about how important that is and what are the things that keep us from that. Um, if you are a person who is called into such a position, you have to be a very secure person. Uh, you can't be someone who's trying to prove themselves, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's a really important piece, especially if you are a younger person, if you're a person of color, if you are a woman coming into such a position, uh, you feel many times that you have to prove yourself. Right. And that might keep you from uh, being able to, to take the position that you took of being the, the listening, observing servant, right? So it's really important that humility means that you know who you are and you know who you're not. Mm -hmm. And that uh, that's really, really important, right? That you don't have to be proving something. But with mm -hmm. that goes something else. And that is institutionally, sometimes the goals that an institution has, you feel like you're in between the goals of the institution mm -hmm. that you have to hurry up and do X, Y, and Z. Right. But then at the same time, you're dealing with the reality of mm -hmm. what it means to um, do things in accordance with the timing of where people are at, of what it means to observe, or what how long it takes to learn. You said it took you four years, you know, to, to do the learning, etc. And if you're dealing with that and then the institution is pushing at you and saying, well, you know, these are the goals that we have for this mm -hmm. year. Um, that's another place that we have mm -hmm. to navigate, right? I mean, these are these are realities. How did you right. did you have such a thing? And how did you then uh, push back against goals that were not realistic. Yes. Uh, yeah, the way I, I dealt with that is that I had to to explain to to those that I work with that, uh, for example, an expression I used before, one size doesn't fit so. And in order to, to work with, with a group of people, uh, I use the example of Jesus Christ. When Jesus called the 12 uh, in Mark uh, chapter 3, uh, there's a scripture that really always uh, strikes with me is that he appointed them to be with them. So Jesus walked with the disciples, ate with the disciples, fished with the disciples. They slept at the same place and they had a relationship. They established first a relationship upon which, I mean, he didn't need to know how they were or what they were, but I think this is giving us an example for you to be able to be effective as a minister. You need to know the people you are ministering to. And I use that relational model uh, with, my, with my superiors. And uh, I was fortunate that at the time, my church was embracing that kind of leadership as well. And, and they were able to, to support me in that particular aspect because this was the first time when I came to, to California, uh, here I am a Puerto Rican in a mainly Salvadorian and Mexican constituency church, even though we have other different, uh, other different uh, nationalities. But uh, I'm certain that many of my Mexican brothers and sisters says, why do not have a Mexican bishop or a Salvadorian bishop? Because uh, we have more uh, represented in, in the, in the, in the state. But, uh, for me, something that really helped me is that I try to, to learn, to relate. And, uh, you know, I will, I will go to meetings and I always stay after the meetings. And I didn't sit with the pastors. I sat with the membership. I mean, eat with the members and we share food. They will share me about uh, 
some of their stories and frustrations. And, and I treat to be not just a minister, but someone that they could relate to uh, as a human being. So uh, for me, that is very important. Spend time with them, have this kind of uh, develop this relational model that can allow you to, to learn people. And that happens only when you play with people, when you walk with people, when you eat with people, when you have an opportunity to do that. And that for me was uh, play a big difference. And, and of course, uh, having my wife, uh, my wife has been one of uh, my, it's been my strongest partner in ministry. And in the same token, she was connecting and relating to the wives and to the women in the church and it was a beautiful thing because we were both together uh, working this house. So I cannot take credit for everything, but I can see how my wife's work with the women and the pastor's wives uh, was very, very important too in, in building up these relationships. That's a really important piece that you're bringing up. <clears throat> this relational piece is not just about, um, you know, it's, it's fellowship in order to be able to honor one another. Mm -hmm. And that honoring uh, and that creating of, of the fiber of relationship is everything when it comes to our being able then to hear each other uh, when we have to move as a body in a particular direction, when we have to uh, strategize about how we are going to uh, solve something together. And we know from the beginning that everybody can't have what they want, that we're mm -hmm. going to have to uh, give and take uh, but that relational piece is really important to be able mm -hmm. to uh, then move people in another direction. And I think that many times in a church, we try to uh, go for the move first mm -hmm. without creating that foundation, which is the relationship. If people don't have a yeah. relationship, they can't navigate through the differences that come with um, some of the strategies that we have to move in. And, and adding to that, that also gives you an opportunity to see uh, their spiritual maturity, what their theology is, where they stand. So because when you because part of my job was to equip and develop leadership. So that allowed me to, to kind of gauge where about the spiritual maturity of the people I was working with. What was their theology? What was their spiritual formation? How they what were the spiritual practices and things like that? that allowed me to say, okay, uh-huh, let me make it. So next time I do a training, next time I do a workshop, I'm going to focus on these areas that probably need strengthening and then reinforce these areas that I see that are good and maybe try to address some, I don't want to say heresies, but some things that are not really uh, right there, theologically speaking. And so that gives you an advantage without coming thinking that you have a plan, that you have a, a, an outline and try to impose that on people thinking that, that that's what they need. Because before I went to California, I'll tell you, a lot of people gave me a lot of advice on what I needed to do once I set foot over there. And, uh, but the one thing I, I felt in, in that the spirit led me to do is listen, they put, listen, learn, relate, and you know, you will be able to do the job that God has called you to do. I think this is an important piece because it's the difference between power and authority. Mm -hmm. Power is about having a position. Mm -hmm. And if you come down from your position and what your position uh, tells you that you can do, uh, that's one thing. That doesn't necessarily mean that you've earned the uh, trust of persons. Authority is always earned and you earn it because you've earned the trust of the people and because you're in relationship. Familia, it's your host, Emmanuel Padilla, with a quick reminder. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review and follow at World Outspoken on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter so you never miss Lo Bueno del Mestizo podcast. If you have a question you want us to answer on the show, you can send in your question on the World Outspoken website following the link in the show notes, or you can call 312-725-2995. That's 312-725-2995. Leave us a 30-second voicemail with your name, city, y pregunta, and we'll discuss it on the last episode of the season. That's it for now. Now let's get back to the episode. Jose, you have blown my mind. This is the second episode where I, I've had to pause and just listen because there's so much to take in. I, I, 
I've been focusing in on the quote that you said, we all speak Spanish, but we don't always communicate. And what I'm marveling at is you as a Puerto Rican already have layers of tension with your Hispanic congregations. So we're not, let's not even look at the layer of the Anglos, just alone between los Latinos, there's already a tension there because you said the numbers and because of some of the other things in terms of culture identity, right? We have we have some privileges as Puerto Ricans moving into the states that some of your membership wouldn't have had. And so so I imagine that you had to navigate some very delicate conversations. But the part that I'm marveling at in particular is you had to navigate those conversations, as you said, as a trainer of pastors. And so you were appointing the pastors and training the pastors that would ultimately serve these groups. How did you train them to do the same kind of patient navigation? What were the things that you were doing to help them uh, have the eyes to see the things that you were seeing? Yes, uh, the, my key point was the relational part. Uh, for them, I, I used an example, from a good friend of mine taught me this many, many years ago. He shared me the story about the new pastor that came to this church and the piano was smack in the middle of the pulpit. And uh, he said, you know, this is weird. So he came the early in the morning on Sunday and moved the piano all the way to the right to the corner. And then when the congregation came, they just were very upset. What has the pastor done? How dare him? How can this be possible? The, path, the piano has been in the center of the pulpit all the time. And, and they were very offended and they were getting ready to throw the pastor away. And then an elder of the church, he appeased everybody and said, okay, come on, these are new pastors, the, the, let's uh, be patient and let's learn, from, uh, let's learn from one another. And then after service ended, he came to the younger pastor and he said, okay, listen, this is, uh, I know you intended well. I know you have your reasons for not wanting the piano in the middle of the pulpit, but let's, do, why don't you do this? Every Sunday before service, move the piano just one inch to the right. And you will see that at the end of the year, that piano will be all the way to where you want it and people will notice that you were moving the piano. So what I was trying to teach my pastors is, you know, be patient. Don't try to come and change everything at once. Don't think that you have a vision that is the vision that is going to transform this church overnight. Take time. And I always used to tell them, it's taking at least five years before you have the leadership congregation at a place where you can move forward to start doing real gospel in this community. Some churches might take even longer than that. That's really good. It brings to mind, there's a quote from Daniel Rodriguez's book, The Future of the Latino Church. There's a quote where he talks about intentional gradualism. He, he's referring to a kind of uh, purposeful slowness. Tomando nuestro tiempo a llegar paso a paso al cambio, al, al cambio que estamos buscando. Uh, it also reminds me of uh, Dr. Peter Cha at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He's a Korean man. Uh, in his courses, he teaches courses on congregational culture. And he teaches pastors. He says, you have to, when you're going to introduce a change, he has to do what he calls traditioned innovation. That is a change that goes along the lines of the tradition of the church, a tra uh, a, a change that 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 is consistent with the story of the church. And it sounds like you were training pastors to do something similar. Is that right? Oh, Yes. Very, very similar. Is because uh, sometimes when we are new, we have all these ideas, and we and we live in a society that want to see change overnight. And I used to tell people, you know, Jesus waited thirty years before he started his ministry. That doesn't mean you need to wait thirty years to start doing ministry. But you know what? It's going to take time, and you cannot expect to see change overnight. Be patient, and God will honor that because of what you say. Traditions can really kill a pastor's ministry if a pastor doesn't exercise wisdom. Because when you come to, an, unless you have planted that church and you have molded that church to be like you are, because, you know, churches acquire the personality of the pastor. When you come to a new church, when you come to a church that has been established, you just have to come with a very humble spirit and learn and be patient. And when you, the change that you want to see, you have to do it gradually. And then you have to go a good reason. You know, I like, I like what you said. How, how can you connect this with the tradition 
that you can see those points of agreement that will support what you are trying to do. But at the same time, teaching people that the church is dynamic, that the church is not static, and that there have to be changes. There are going to be changes because we cannot do uh, the gospel today the same the way we did it 15, 20 years ago. For all that matters, five years ago, you know, with Facebook and Instagram and everything that's going out there, social media, uh, and where our congregations. I remember when I used to go to church, it was church on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Sometimes Saturday would be off. Sometimes it was it wouldn't be off. And now you barely go to church on Wednesday, maybe on Sunday. <laughs> but the advantage of those days, here I am thinking, talking like an earlier, you were constantly being fed with the gospel. But now when you leave church, who is feeding you? The news media, music, uh, and all these other different media that is constantly bombarding your brain with all sorts of ideas and information that the church has only about two hours a week to come to to clarify or to give you a different worldview from what you're getting from the, from the secular world. It's interesting you bring that up. <clears throat> Excuse me. We talked about Pastore Mileniales, uh, millennials. You and I had a conversation in setting up this podcast where you said, yeah, I've worked with millennial pastors. I'd love to hear how you prepared millennial pastors to take on older congregations. How did you prepare them for that? Well, uh, the illustration of the piano was my entry point. <laughs> and then the five years, I said, listen, uh, you need to come and let this church know you. When people know that, see that you're a real person, and they can see your feelings, how you relate. And then uh, you will start getting their trust. You will start getting their love and you will start getting their support. And you can start, you know, affecting the change that you want to see based on the vision that God has given to you. But I use the, the piano illustration and the five years uh, plan because I will tell them, listen, I'm not going to push you. I don't want you to come here to this church thinking that you had to double the membership in one year, in two years, in three years. I don't want you to come to this church thinking that you had to increase the level of offerings and tithing in your church. You know, none of the things that sometimes drive a church, uh, which is money and numbers, because, uh, you know, pastors are like fishermen. We like to talk, oh, yes, I have this church and uh, I have 200 members. Actually, maybe you have 75 but uh, every now and then you have a revival and you get 200, you know, like true fishermen. We like to accelerate our membership size. And uh, we go by the numbers on the registry, not on the ones that show up on service. <laughs> That's good. That's a good word. It's honest. It's true. So what do you do with the young people in the, in the meantime who might come to that church? But because you're waiting for those five years, those young people mm-hmm. are coming in and not feeling like they fit. Mm-hmm. And so they're leaving to go someplace mm-hmm. else. And the church is, in a sense, uh, missing an opportunity, not knowing that it's missing an opportunity. And the pastor feels kind of like in between, right? Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. The pastor mm-hmm. sees that there are other people coming in. They're not fitting into this reality right now. Do I always send them, you know, across the street over to Emmanuel's place because that's, you know, the, the hip hop place? Or mm-hmm. do I... Uh, and then, you know, I'm over here with uh, the elders. And so what, what are we saying? That that church is going to close or that it takes five years before it moves forward by then? Do we still have an opportunity? Because in the meantime, you know, Mr. Hip Hop across the street is mm-hmm. is just picking them up. And that's the happening place and everybody's going there. I mean, that's that's part of the reality, right? You know, if I'm ever a pastor, I'm going to have hip hop as the worship. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when, when you and, and that's true, uh, uh, Dr. Conde, uh, when we have uh, that happens among, among generations and usually you know, sometimes some advice I gave, listen, you can have a classic service and a contemporary service. You can have the classic service in the Sunday morning service, you know, and you can have the contemporary service in the evening service. And both services will have a different structure when it comes to worship, the preaching, and things to that effect. And you can try then to, to accommodate in, in, in this way. And also on uh, with the youth pastors, I was more more, uh, how can I say, more flexible, because I know that the younger, the younger generation in, in, in the church, they wanted something more, more contemporary. 
So that's what I came with the idea of the classic and contemporary services because uh, usually young people respond better to to the contemporary service and the older generation uh, more conservative. They they like the classic service with the with the hymn books, not the screens, you know, and and the old songs and and things to that effect. And that's the way you you try to navigate. And if you good pastor, you know, you have a good youth pastor, associate pastor. Uh, you can empower him to to do more that is more in line with the, with our younger generation of the church. Senor Garcia, that's really good, but I do have one question, an objection that I've heard before from other, uh, heard by other pastors when they've tried to do something similar, is that, no, eso divide la familia. Entonces tengo mi joven en un culto y, y yo en otro. Uh, how did you respond or manage that tension? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that is a, a challenge uh, that we are going to have. But I'm, my response to uh, to that would be: I didn't get, I didn't have that kind of uh, question. But uh, my response to be: I I'm looking for ways in which we can stay connected in worship with God. And uh, I rather see my children coming to the evening service for the contemporary service than staying at home all Sunday because there's nothing for them. And uh, it's a way for us to to address a need. I know it's not it's not perfect, but uh, uh, it's the best. It's not the only solution, but it is a challenge. And you know, always you're not going to be able to satisfy everybody or please everybody. Uh, we're using a model in the church I am attending now uh, which actually is not is not from my denomination, but the pastor have embraced me uh, as one of his uh, advisors, so to speak. We have a Latino church, and we have the Anglo church. The Anglo church is a mega church. The Anglo church has two services, one at eight thirty and one at eleven. Then the Latino church have their service at eleven. So what we have been able to do is that uh, Sunday school. Everybody comes to the Sunday school of their preference. So the young people come to English-speaking Sunday school if they feel more comfortable speaking English. And then at 11, they move to the English worship with at the main auditorium with the big church. Then the first-generation Latinos, they move to the Latino church at the same time in the Latino area. And, and we come out all at the same time. You go to different worships, English, Spanish, but we are going to church at the same time and we're exiting church at the same time. And it's a model that, uh, that has been giving us good results because for families with kids that are relating better in English, they feel more comfortable singing in English and they like the more contemporary songs in English and things like that. Uh, it's, been, it's been good. They, they feel good about it and they come to church with their parents and they leave church with their parents. But it's, it's challenging, you know. It's, it's hard to find a model that will please, uh, will please everyone and we satisfy every need. We try to do the best we can with what we have. What I see within that is <clears throat> it does, you know, satisfy the immediate pieces that seem to be in most conflict. Um, if we if we dig a little deeper, I would like to be able to say to that um, non-Latino pastor of that English service that there are things that still need to then be uh, addressed for the Latino young people who are there. Because Mm -hmm. along the way, uh, they need to navigate a world that is different than the world that he's uh, speaking to, the dominant culture that he's speaking to. Mm -hmm. Um, The issues of identity, for example. So Mm -hmm. I would want to see that pastor informed about those things and become sensitive to those pieces. Because while... English is one part of the culture of the young people, but mm-hmm. there's a, there are other parts of the culture of those young people about who they will be in the world and how they need to see themselves become in the world that also need to be honored. And mm-hmm. it would help everybody. <clears throat> it's a missed opportunity if the dominant culture church uh, does not hear about these things Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't see them being included in what the pastor is teaching and presenting and so forth. So not only does the young person who is Latino miss out on it, 
but the the other persons who are in that church also miss out on it. There's a fuller uh, challenge of the gospel to everybody mm-hmm. if we don't speak about those pieces, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it's important that for me, if that's really going to work, mm-hmm. that we go deeper and we ask that uh, pastor who now is taking on, who's now being entrusted with mm-hmm. my children, let's say, you know, right? I mean, I'm second generation, but if I was first generation and I'm going to entrust to you as my pastor, that you're going to, you know, be, be working with my kids. Not only do I want the gospel, but there are other things about life that I want that pastor to be able to address with my kids so that they understand who they're going to be in this world. And that's part of vocation and call as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of the intercultural competence training that Nuestro Hermano Garcia was focusing on earlier in the conversation. You're essentially saying these Anglo pastors need to be prepared for that. Uh, I have a story that I think confirms that. I'll, I'll say it in brief, uh, Hermano Garcia, and then I'll let you respond as well. Uh, but as a professor at the Moody Bible Institute, uh, I, I see Hispanic students come in and out of here all the time. And I was having lunch this semester with four of my students, all four of them Puerto Rican. Uh, it's probably, like, what, there's a dozen of them. I had a quarter of those students with me at lunch. <laughs> but uh, I had them with me. And I'll never forget, I was sitting there talking to them and they were talking about the multicultural churches that they were now at and how the services are in English and it's very diverse and how excited they were. And I was realizing that as they were talking, the four of the four of those students, none of them, none of them spoke Spanish. Uh, most of them were not attached to a Puerto Rican tradition of any kind. And one of them explicitly at one point said, I just really don't know the Puerto Rican church. I've never been really connected to it. And he said it in a way that uh, it was clear that he was saddened by that. And I was talking with an African-American coworker of mine later. He, he uh, He's a pastor of a multicultural church. And I, I identified, there's a pastor here, Charlie Dates here in Chicago. He's an African-American pastor. He pastors a uh, mostly African-American church, very traditionally. He's a young millennial pastor, pastoring an African-American church that is historic, but he's pastoring it in a very traditional way. And he said once in a meeting of pastors here in Chicago, he said, I'm all for the multicultural model, but I also think we have to be careful not to kill the traditions of the minority churches that are a gift and a blessing to the church as well. And I was thinking about that and connected it to my students where I'm worried that if we lean too heavily on the multicultural model, there isn't something like that for our younger Hispanic uh, Christians, Latino Christians, to look back to, a Hispanic church that's maintaining and keeping alive a tradition that they can be attached to. What do you think? Uh, that's, that's been a tension for me. Yes, uh, that, is, that is a great model. I saw a lot of that in California, uh, where the younger people uh, still, uh, they were... The, they will go to the Hispanic church and, and they will be part of the, of the Latino church uh, at the services in Spanish. And then they will come back in the evening and come to the class, to the contemporary service because uh, their parents wanted them not to lose on that experience. Some of them, I can tell you from, from my very own experience, both my daughters were born in, in Tennessee, in a small town in Tennessee called Cleveland, Tennessee. So they were born and raised in, in Cleveland, Tennessee. But uh, my wife and I intentionally, uh, we went to an old Anglo church because we didn't have Latino churches uh, until, wow, late 90s. Uh, so we were there from 82 through 98. And uh, the one thing that we intentionally did is that uh, first uh, at home, we would speak uh, Spanish only. And then when I got a big old satellite dish and I had... Uh, the Cartoon Network and all that uh, in Spanish. And then in the summers, I will send them to my father-in-law's church, which was all Spanish in Miami. And I, I believe that that experience is needed because to this day, my daughters know literature, poetry, songs from Puerto Rico. They can speak both in English and Spanish. They know our poets. They know our songwriters. Uh, when they go home for Christmas, they can read singing all the parrandas and they eat pasteles and lechon and uh, alcapurrias and everything that we eat. Uh, no, no siga que me das hambre. <laughs> <laughs> but all, all, I'm saying all this, that that immersion is necessary and it needs to be also 
it, it needs to be part of the upbringing. And I would encourage young people like that, uh, don't miss on that because you're missing a lot. And one day you're going to regret not having that connection. And uh, it's never too late. We also need to make sure that our Anglo pastors are aware of the importance of that. So that if they're pastoring and ministering in a multicultural church, they know, hey, there's a part of this that I can't shape or that I need partnership to shape, right? Maybe that's the better way to say that. Not necessarily that I can't, but I I can't do it alone. Maybe that's the best way to say it, that I need a partnership. I need someone who can help shape this, at least have it. Yes, and this is where I'm sure that you have a Latino pastor there Mm -hmm. and you have the Anglo pastor and that partnership needs to be very intentional. They need to be able to both be humble enough to learn from each other, to uh, give, to complement these pieces. Um, Theological education has not been good enough on either side. On the Latino side, we need to understand what it means to um, create these experiences when the environment that we're in doesn't uh, facilitate them. Mm-hmm. Um, you were very intentional in what you did for your daughters. You were very intentional, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so this is an intentional process. It's not osmosis. It doesn't just mm-hmm. kind of happen, right? Mm-hmm. And many times uh, parents, uh, persons of first generation feel like, you know, why don't these kids, you know, speak the right way, etc. Como mm-hmm. si lo fueran a coger así del aire. No, this mm-hmm. is an intentional process, you know, that we have to create and be strategic about. And in the same way, um, seminaries don't teach uh, dominant culture pastors to understand what it means to um, do church with people of different cultures. And they really are miseducating. Their seminaries are miseducating um, their, the, 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 the students that are going to go out and be you know, pastors because they think that they're just going to go out and be a part of uh, an Anglo church. And the reality is that the church today is changing, that the numbers of persons who are going to be um, at the age of worshiping and so forth is going to be a, a great deal Asian and Latino. In the African-American church, the population is more or less plateauing, but, you know, we're going to have to have more and more of these uh, very intentional kinds of partnerships and the cultural competency of which you spoke in the beginning. This is all a part of it. We can no longer, neither Anglos nor Latinos, African-Americans, Asians, none of us, none of us can afford to not understand what it means when we bring our different cultures together, that it's not just about the worship moment, but -hmm. it's about the nurture, the full nurture of of a person who's becoming in this world. Mm -hmm. Um, And and we need psychology, you know, psychology informs that, um, Christian education informs that, all of these pieces need to be a part of how we dialogue about this. Mano Garcia, how did you become aware of the importance of that? You know, what led you down a path that led you to become the trainer of pastors and and building in cultural competence as part of their skill set? It was a very much uh, observing as a member, as a church member, and seeing the different conflicts. Uh, I've seen so many pastors. Uh, in, in from the Anglo side, they come with this in the States, colonial missions type, colonial missions type of uh, pastoring multicultural churches or different ethnic groups. Uh, it's like the, like the a redeemer complex or something like that, that here I am, you know, we in, in the big U.S., with this much technology and all that we have, we, we are going to uh, teach you how to do it our way. And that really upset me because one thing I learned is when I was a small kid in Puerto Rico, is Puerto Rico, it's a small island, we're a little dot in the, Pacific, in the Atlantic Ocean and the Caribbean. We don't have many resources. Oh, 
when the Americans came and they brought all this and they're big and smart and strong and all this stuff. And I always felt like, man, my island, we're really a bunch of, you know, little people with no capacity. Then I started learning about our poets, our scientists, uh, our engineers, mathematicians, and all the good stuff that and things that they were doing that it led me to think, no, this is a lie. And I need it, and it needs to go both ways. I needed to start with my own brothers and sisters and then with my Anglo counterparts to understand we have as much or more to offer than what you can offer. Amen. And we can come to the side, to the table as equals, but uh, if, if you take time to listen to me, if you take time to work with me, you will see that we can grow together because I know you have much to offer to me, but I don't want you to think that you are the one, you know, pouring into me. I can pour a lot into you as well. And that's why I felt the need for cultural competence because uh, in, in my church in particular, uh, we have mission work all around the world. And I think that the relational model that many of our leadership has been adopting is been positive, uh, but we still have long ways to go. And I see this just in about every church I go where things are done in a certain way and we either accommodate or we have no place. I've got one last question for you, uh, Nuestro Hermano Jose. I want to be honoring of your time and I want to thank you, but I do have one last question. I train pastors when it relates to cultural competence through World Outspoken as the ministry that's helping to put on this podcast. And I often, not just in churches, but even in seminaries, which is my primary work, right? I work here at a Bible college and seminary. I often encounter uh, dominant culture, majority culture students, pastors, leaders, who are resistant to the idea that cultural competence is an important part of the training. Uh, they, they think that that is modern. They think it's liberal. They think it's, you know, fill in the blank. You know, how, would, how do you respond to those objections when people say, this is not important, it's unnecessary, uh, people just need to know that they're one in Christ and get over it? I'll say, okay, let's do an internship in El Barrio for six months. And you're going to see if this is important or not. Toma. <laughs> Make it a compulsory part of the training. At least six, I will say it a year. I will say a year. Give, have an internship as part of your core studies. Go to El Barrio. Uh, I love the, a program uh, the, the MAC in San Antonio had. Uh, it's a program from the Catholic Church when... Uh, Bishop Elizondo was there and Dr. Julio Justo Gonzalez. And they used to take people across the border uh, for about two, three months. Uh, they're, they're Anglo students. And I think that is a good model, but I will go longer than that. I will go six months a year and you will learn how important it is to have cultural competence. You know, have them get go and prepare. Don't tell them something. Okay, go with your model, prepare your message, prepare your Bible studies, Go and minister and pray for the people. You know, the, let them start from scratch. And I, I tr trust me, at the end of the year, they're going to be a much different uh, attitude and pastor. And <laughs> oh, I think that's a great idea. Trial by fire. I think that's a great idea. I'm going to start doing that with my students. Uh, Elizabeth, do you have a final question or thought or something you'd like to ask, Dr. Hermano? I was just thinking about you know, these transitions and so on and so forth. What do you do when you find yourself, when you find that there is a power struggle between the two generations? I mean, we've talked about the ideal pieces, right? That what, what mm -hmm. makes it work. What do you do when, when you find yourself in the midst of something that isn't working right now? Um, mm -hmm. How do you help persons to... Um, be able to listen to one another. A lot of churches find themselves in that position where they they have a, a war between the first and the second generation leaders, a pastor who uh, doesn't really know how to help them to navigate this. What would be uh, the steps that you think are needed to help um, a, a conflict such as that one? You know, Dr. Conde, that is one of the most frustrating uh, parts of ministry when people entrench themselves in their thinking or 
review and they just don't want to be open to for different way of, of, of doing ministry. Like I said in the beginning, the ministry is dynamic. And one illustration I used to, to share with some of my pastors is uh, if the men and women from the early church would come to one of our services today, they would probably think uh, that, what is this? What's happening here? Because they're going to see a church that is totally different from what we read about how worship was done in the in the early church and what was the main thing, the catechism and everything that was so important in the early church. And nowadays, uh, the, the, oh goodness, the, the communion, the, the place that communion plays, baptism, how important and, and key baptism was, you know, for the early church. And now we see what the church today puts its priorities on. And I I'm usually bring this to say the church is a dynamic body and it has to change through the years in order to be able to, not to change the message, but to change the packaging so it will respond to the context in which you are. Sadly, I have to tell you, Dr. Conde, not every story is a success story. Uh, sadly, uh, I had experiences that uh, I lost young people uh, to to other congregations because they just felt that uh, things were not going to change, things were not going to happen. And but I always been an encourager of having the conversation, and I never quit. Uh, like the widow, I never quit trying to affect change. But uh, it, it's a challenging situation. It's a long process. And sometimes it even takes a pastoral change. And in in one church in particular, I had to change the pastor because I had a pastor, uh, older generation, with a church that was mostly younger generation. But he was first; uh, he he wasn't uh, he was almost a first generation pastor. He came from another country. But he just didn't want to change and and adapt to the to the local church, and I, I was about to lose that church, and uh, I had a conversation with him. I moved them to a different church. I said, "I listen. I think for your health and the health of the church, I need to make this move." And I had to transfer him to a different congregation. I brought a younger, dynamic pastor. And that church has been thriving ever since because uh, they were able to connect with the younger pastor and the worship, the visiting, the ministry, the leadership of that church evolved to a point that uh, it thrived. But uh, I wish I didn't have to do that, but uh, at least there's a couple of instances that I had to talk to the pastor and say, okay, for the health of the church and for your own health, because this is not helping you. It's not helping the church. And we are here to advance the, the, the word of God. We are here to advance the gospel, not our agendas or points of views. What we need to do here is to make sure that we advance the message of the kingdom of God. And at this time, as the bishop, I had to make this decision. And I had to, a couple of times I had to do that. And sometimes I, I, I lost young I know that I lost young people because they just couldn't wait for change to happen. That is <clears throat> a real word about what the value is here that we've been talking about, Emmanuel. I think that the bishop's words are great words of wisdom for all of us at this time. Yes. Uh, they're sobering words, but wisdom is usually sobering. And I thank you, Bishop, really for sharing uh, so um, openly about the mm -hmm. many sides that this issue is really all about within the messiness of who we are as the body of God. Yes, uh, humanity gets in the way of what God wants to do, and that's why we mess things up. Uh, we would allow God to be God through us. It would be so easy, but humanity gets in the way, and oh well. Obipo Garcia. I, I, I don't give up. Uh, I, hey, if Jesus came and died for us, why should I give up? You know, that Christ dying on the cross gives me hope that there is something better, that there is, we can, you know, we can have a, a, a victorious uh, a ministry, but uh, sometimes it's difficult to get there. 
Obipo Garcia, we want to thank you. You have been uh, charming, insightful, wise, uh, giving us a somber word. And I, I want to say thank you for your ministry. Thank you for being an encouragement as as an elder statesman that is that is pointing or leading the way for for young guys like me to look at and say this is the kind of person I want to be, and uh, and I want to thank you very much for for giving me that model and and for giving of your wisdom and story for other pastors who need to hear it, both young and old. I think this is going to be a blessing to both. So thank you very much. Amen. Thank you for the opportunity. Bueno, mi gente, that's the end of another classic episode of the Mestizo Podcast. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app, leave us a review, and follow at World Outspoken on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter so you never miss Lo Bueno. If you have a question you want us to answer on the show, you can send in your question on the World Outspoken website following the link in the show notes or call 312-725-2995. Translation, 312-725-2995. Leave us a 30-second voicemail with your name, city, and question, and we'll discuss it on the last episode of the season. Bueno, tato, that's it. Bendiciones.